Romans. We're beginning a new Bible study through the letter of Romans today. So hopefully you have your Bible and you can make your way over to the letter of Romans in the New Testament. I want to begin by sharing my personal encounter with the letter of Romans for the first time. I was a freshman in college when I came to faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and began following Him with my life. And I immediately started reading through the New Testament of my Bible. I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story of Jesus' life. I read the book of Acts, which tells the story of the beginning of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And then I came to the letter of Romans. And when I read Romans for the first time, I found it to be particularly helpful for me. In Romans, I read in clearly stated terms that I was saved by faith rather than by living an exceedingly good life. And that was a hugely comforting thing for me to discover. See, I wanted to please God with my life. I wanted to do the right things. I wanted to live a good and godly life. But I realized quickly after beginning to follow Jesus that I was still a very sinful person, struggling with much of the same stuff that I did before I had become a Christian. Receiving Jesus into my life had not instantly transformed me into a perfect person. And this bothered me a great deal. This continual struggle with sin. Me still being tempted by the same things, me continuing to do the same things that I very much didn't want to keep doing. I was afraid that I was not really saved, that my soul was still lost, that if the Lord came back at the wrong moment, I would be in big trouble because I was still sinning. I didn't have a peaceful assurance about my salvation. The letter of Romans is where I began to get an assurance about my salvation for the first time because I began to understand that my salvation rested on the goodness of the Lord rather than on the goodness of Jeff. I'm not trusting in my own gumption and dedication to get me into heaven. I'm trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for me. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 are the key verses of the letter of Romans. These verses summarize the big idea that we find throughout the letter of Romans. This is the truth that changes lives and makes the Christian gospel message uniquely powerful and important. Well, before we dive into the actual content of the letter of Romans, I want to make a few introductory remarks about it. Uh, Who wrote the letter? That's a place I'd like to start. Who wrote the letter? The letter 
was written by the Apostle Paul, and the writer of the letter is identified in the very first verse of the letter. Paul is the author of 13 of the 27 books and letters that are in the New Testament. The letter to the Romans is considered Paul's magnum opus, his most important and comprehensive writing. We've talked a lot about Paul's life uh, at other times, so I don't want to spend much time today doing that again. It's believed, though, that Paul was probably in Corinth when he wrote the letter to Romans while he was on his third missionary journey in or around A.D. 57. It always strikes me as interesting that these writings that were done 2,000 years ago remain relevant and important for our lives today. Well, who's the letter written to? The recipients of the letter, they're identified in chapter 1, verse 7 of the letter. It says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. The believers in the church in the city of Rome were predominantly Gentiles or non-Jewish people. Although there was a significant number of Jewish believers also in the church, Rome was the capital city of the great Roman Empire. It was the largest and most influential city in the known world of the time. The importance of the city of Rome at the time can't be overstated, really. And we are all familiar with Rome on some level. We all had to study something about the Romans going through school and all of that. The church in this city certainly would have felt the pressures and the influences that would come from being in such a city as Rome. What was the purpose of this letter? Why was it written? Well, Paul felt that he had largely completed his missionary work in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So his hope was to travel to Rome on his way to Spain, where he intended to preach the gospel of Jesus. But first, he needed to go to Jerusalem, he said, to deliver the money that he had collected from the Gentile churches for the poor in the church at Jerusalem. This is all talked about in Romans chapter 15, verses 23 through 29. Paul sent this letter ahead to the believers in Rome, informing them of his plans to visit and to prepare them for his visit by laying out a very careful presentation of God's plan of salvation for all people. Paul had not been to Rome before. He didn't start this church so he's introducing himself to them for the first time, even though they certainly know who Paul is and they are aware of his ministry. Salvation is the main theme of the letter, our need for salvation, how salvation is received, what God has done to make salvation possible for us, that the salvation that God has provided through Christ is available to all people, both Jews and Gentiles, and how our salvation should impact our lives even in the here and now. The Bible teacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, is famously known for his study of Romans. He preached on the book of Romans every Sunday for 13 years. The teachings that he did on the book of Romans were then published in written form, and they occupy 14 volumes. They're considered to be one of the most comprehensive treatments 
of the letter of Romans. It is certainly an impressive accomplishment. Now, I want to put your mind at ease today and tell you that I don't plan to spend the next 13 years teaching the book of Romans. I intend to move us through this letter at a much quicker pace. As Clint Eastwood's character, Dirty Harry, said, a man's got to know his limitations. But in contrast to Martin Lloyd-Jones' study of Romans, the NIV Study Bible provides the following one-paragraph summary of the letter, which I think captures really well the main content of the letter, and it helps us get oriented for our study. So I'd like to just read that for us this morning. Paul begins by surveying the spiritual condition of all mankind. He finds Jews and Gentiles alike to be sinners and in need of salvation. That salvation has been provided by God through Jesus Christ and His redemptive work on the cross. It's a provision, however, that must be received by faith, a principle by which God has always dealt with mankind as the example of Abraham shows. Since salvation is only the beginning of Christian experience, Paul moves on to show how the believer is freed from sin, law, and death, a provision made possible by his union with Christ in both death and resurrection and by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Paul then shows that Israel too, though presently in a state of unbelief, has a place in God's sovereign redemptive plan. Now she, Israel, consists of only a remnant allowing for the conversion of the Gentiles, but the time will come when all Israel will be saved. The letter concludes with an appeal to the readers to work out their Christian faith in practical ways, both in the church and in the world. So let's flip over to Romans chapter 1, and let's begin in verse 1 of the letter. It says, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The letter of the Romans begins in the usual way for letters of the time period. We've noticed this before, but rather than putting who the letter is to at the beginning of the letter and then saying who the letter is from at the end of the letter, as we do in our letters, instead, who the letter is from is stated first, then who the letter is to is stated, followed by a greeting. And so he begins, Paul, as we mentioned before, this is who the letter is from, the Apostle Paul. After naming himself as the author of the letter, Paul tells us who he is, and he gives his qualifications for writing the letter. How a person identifies their self is very important in our day, isn't it? I mean, people say, I identify as, and then fill in the blank. Here's how Paul fills in the blank for himself, for how he identifies himself. I am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This is how Paul sees himself. This is who he is. This is his identity. The word translated from the Greek into English as servant is the word doulos, which means to be a slave of somebody. Paul's master is Jesus Christ, who tells him what to do and when to do it. 
He's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here, apostle refers to the specific call that Paul has on his life as an envoy of Jesus Christ, commissioned directly by Jesus Christ and carrying the delegated authority of Jesus Christ in the work that he does. The mention of the words gospel of God causes Paul to pause at this point and elaborate on this gospel, this good news for a moment in verse 2. It says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The, the gospel is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to us. Way back in the book of Genesis, the very first book in our Bible, when Adam and Eve fell and they broke their relationship with God, they broke their relationship with each other, and they broke the world that God had created for them, he made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the woman's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. That verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel. It's the first appearance of the gospel. God promised that he would rescue us and redeem all that has been broken, that the Savior is coming, and then throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures, as Paul calls them here, God speaks through various prophets pointing to the time when the Messiah would come, bringing salvation, promising a new relationship would be created for us with God. God would make a new covenant with us. This gospel is centered in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is uniquely qualified to save us. In verse 3 it says, who, as to his Earthly life was a descendant of David. The Son of God entered into our timeline of history as a human being, descended from the lineage of David, Israel's most celebrated king. Verse 4, And who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Through His resurrection from the dead, Jesus is shown to indeed be God the Son. The resurrection authenticates who he is, his deity. One commentator writes, had Jesus not risen from the dead, he would be remembered today only as a Jewish moralist who had some inflated ideas about his own relationship to God and made a number of ridiculous demands on those who wanted to be, who wanted to be his disciples. On the other hand, if it is true that he rose from the dead, then his teachings about himself are true and his requirements for discipleship must be taken with all seriousness. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. He is unique. There is no other person in all of the world who is like Jesus Christ. And it is his unique nature of being both human and God that enables him to be our Savior our Messiah. And so, verse 4, it ends with these words, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This special, unique, one-of-a-kind Savior, Jesus Christ, is our 
Lord. How wonderful it is to be able to call this Jesus our Lord. Verse 5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah Jesus. Didn't come for the Jewish people alone. The gospel is good news for all people who will respond in faith. Notice what it says here about faith. The obedience that comes from faith. Real faith in Jesus produces obedience to Him in our life. Obedience will be an outgrowth of our faith. Faith is not intellectual assent to a series of propositions, but surrender to the one who asks us to trust Him. There are people who say, I believe in Jesus. But there's no evidence in their life of that belief. If we truly believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then there will be evidence of that belief in how we live our life. There will be a surrendering of our will to Him. There will be a reliance on Him for our well-being. There will be a moving of ourselves out of the center position of our life and putting Him there instead. There will be a putting into practice the teachings of Jesus. This is not being done perfectly in any of us. We are all on a journey of ups and downs, successes and failures, good days and bad days. But the person who has a complete absence of obedience and life-affecting trust in Jesus Christ needs to seriously question the faith that they are claiming to have. Whatever it is that they are claiming to have is not the faith being talked about here in Romans. Finally, look at what it says at the end of verse 6. It says, we are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul opened his letter saying that he's been called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel as a servant of Jesus Christ. And now he tells the recipients of this letter that they too are called to belong to Jesus. Christian, we belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what is that price that was paid? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Can you think of anyone that you would rather belong to than Jesus Christ? No one loves us more. No one has our very best interests at heart more. No one cares for us more. No one understands us more. I would rather belong to him than to myself. I've made a mess of my life under my own lordship. Jesus, take the wheel, as the country song says. Amen? And may we live like we belong to him. Seven, it says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So this is who the letter is originally written to. And look at how Paul describes the believers in Rome, and in extension, all believers, including ourselves. It says, loved by God. God loves all people in a general way, but he has a very special love for those 
who have responded to him in faith, embracing his son Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Christian, you are loved by God in a very special way. You are one of his precious ones. You are now counted as one of his children. Second, he says, called to be his holy people. God's purpose for us is that we be holy like him. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. It says, Grace and peace to you. This is the usual greeting that Paul uses in his letters, which is a combination of both the usual Greek and the usual Jewish greetings. Greek or grace and Jewish peace. So grace and peace. Even in the opening greeting of his letters, Paul conveys this idea that the salvation that comes through Jesus is for all people. And that through this gospel, a new community of people has been created, which reaches across all boundaries that people have created for themselves. No one is excluded. Everyone is invited. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. So beginning with verse 8, we enter into the actual body of the letter, and Paul begins with thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God for the beautiful, life-changing work that the Lord has been doing in the believers in Rome. The Lord's good work in them has been so profound that it's being reported all over, he says. Christians who visit Rome, they come back to their hometowns and they tell about the amazing work that God is doing among the people in Rome. The church there is thriving, they say, even in the midst of all of the pressure from the unbelieving culture that surrounds it in this city of Rome. What a wonderful thing to have said about you. Lord, may the same thing be said about us here at Touchstone. Amen? May the life-changing work that the Lord is doing in us be reported to others to encourage them and to bring glory to the Lord. Verse 9, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. So even though Paul has never been to this church before and met these people, he says he's been praying for them and he's praying that God will open the way for him to be able to come to them. In verse 11 he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be Unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul expresses how much he longs to see these believers in Rome. And in fact, he says he's made plans many times to go to Rome, but it's never worked out. He's hoping It'll work out this time. He's hoping for the opportunity to serve them, to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And in verse 14, he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So we're given some insight into why Paul wants to go to Rome. 
It's, it's not to see the sights of the capital city of the empire, although there's nothing inherently wrong with a person wanting to do that. It's not so Paul can enrich himself in some way at the expense of the people in Rome. He says he wants to go there to preach the gospel because he feels obligated to do that for everyone, no matter who they are, the wealthy and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the respected of society and the scorn of society, the well-mannered and the rude, no matter a person's background or culture or identity in Christ, all are invited. The gospel is for everyone. What an important message for the people of our day. I mean, people are dividing themselves in the most vicious of ways, hating each other, excluding each other, attacking each other, writing each other off, canceling each other. The gospel of Jesus Christ enters into all of that vitriol that people are spewing on each other. And it says in Romans 10, 11, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile or any other kind of human being. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christian, we are obligated in the same way Paul was obligated to extend the Lord's welcoming hand in the gospel to all people, whether they are like us or very much unlike us. All are to be invited. It is good news for everyone. We finally get to verses 16 and 17, which I had mentioned in the introductory remarks that these verses are the key verses of the letter. The rest of the letter explains and expands on what is said in these verses. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is not reluctant or embarrassed or, in, or timid or uncertain or afraid that the gospel is not worthy of a person's consideration. Paul feels very much the opposite. He has tremendous confidence in the gospel, convinced that it is the very thing Thing that is most needed by every person. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. People talk endlessly about what we need to do to fix the many problems in our world. Some say we need to go back to the way it used to be. How far back do we go? When was it ideal? When were things better than they have ever been? When was it good for everyone? Was it 50 years ago? Was it 100 years ago? Was it 1,000 years ago? Some say that we need to deconstruct it all. They say what we have is a corrupt system built by corrupt people. 
So it all needs to go. Well, there's certainly truth in that. But let us not forget that history has demonstrated many times, over and over again, that every system built by people ends up being corrupt because people are corrupt. Human beings have proven to be their own worst enemies because there is a corruption resident within us that continually spoils our best intentions and efforts. The solution to our problems, both individually and corporately, is not to try harder, to be more devoted to our cause, to gin up more passion, to burn down everything, to drink and drug ourselves into a stupor, to shop more, to cancel those who don't share our opinion and point of view, to tap into our inner potential. The solution to our problems is the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. In the gospel, salvation is not only initiated by God's power, but also carried through by His power. See, He doesn't just give us a new start and then leave it up to us to get it done. That wouldn't be effectually any different than the way human life begins already. I mean, we're born into this world given a new start. And how do we do with all of that? Well, we turn that new start into a train wreck before we even get to puberty. And it goes downhill from there. Some of us make a bigger mess than others, but we are all mess makers. Instead, God gives us new life when we put saving faith in Jesus as Savior. And He grows that new life in us as we live by faith in Christ, God's power is at work saving us from start to finish by faith from first to last, as it says in verse 17. This salvation that we're talking about is not just the forgiveness of our sins. It includes our justification, being made right with God, being reconciled with Him. It includes our sanctification, growing in holiness, and it includes our glorification, becoming like Jesus in His resurrected form. The salvation that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes human lives by God's power. This power of God that brings salvation, it's tapped into, it's taken hold of, it's connected to, it's activated in our life, it's received by us, by believing the gospel. Everyone who believes. For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. People often think righteousness is something that we can achieve by our own efforts by being a good person. And, you know, some people are very nice. They're polite, they're helpful, they're good sharers, they're kind and considerate, they follow the rules, and so forth. They're good folk. And some of you are those good folk. 
The righteousness of God, though, is much more than that. It's a right and accepted standing before God that can't be obtained through being nice, well-behaved people. Even the very best of us is not that good. Like it says in Romans 3.10, none of us are righteous. The righteousness of God, it's something that needs to be received by faith. It's something that God gives to us. It's something that God declares us to be. Rather than trusting in our own righteousness to be good enough to make us right before God, which it never will, we trust in the righteousness that God gives us through Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that is by faith. We put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us and keeps doing for us now and forever. We live by faith in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him... Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And we, we've uh, looked at this verse many times in the past, but, but it's, it's a key truth in this. This is the amazing exchange that Jesus makes with us. This beautiful, perfect Jesus, he took the guilt of our sin upon himself when he died on the cross, and his perfect righteousness is given to us who are not righteous. We're not just declared not guilty, but we are given righteousness. We are declared righteous and we are being made righteous. We take hold of this by faith. We believe and trust that this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we believe and trust that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. We're going to stop there this morning. So in closing, I I ask you, are you trusting in your own righteousness, trying to have a relationship with God by being a good person, doing the right things? I, I don't want to discourage you, but you are doomed to fail. None of us are good enough long enough to pull that off. And it's an awful treadmill to live on. God loves you and he's offering you an alternative. Trust in the righteousness that he will give you. Put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you and will do in you. Rather than frustration and fear and guilt, you can experience God's peace and joy. Christian, I want to remind you that God makes you righteous through what Jesus has done for you. Live in the peace and joy of that truth. Believe and trust in what he's done for you and what he's going to do and keeps doing in you. I leave us with that precious promise in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we applaud you because you have done the unbelievable 
for us. Lord, I pray for all of us here that uh, we would embrace in faith what you have done for us, Lord, that we would find peace and rest and joy in what you've done for us, Lord. That you would continue your good work in us. Lord, we, we submit our life to you. We belong to you. We ask you would continue to do your good work and make us into those people you want us to be, Lord. We submit our wills to you today as your children. Bless each one in Jesus' name. Amen.